This is Runehammer. found in the distant corners of the cardinal galaxies. But even with this power, their tyranny proved unsustainable, for the thirst for freedom is mightier than any empire can capture. And so in time the mainframes were lost, some say even scattered into more than four fragments. And now your crew, a ragtag bunch of ex-cons, Salvagers and defunct mechanics are the universe's last hope to find the RPG mainframe. Some say it's being used as a fuel source by the scrappers on the outer edges of the galaxy. Some say the RPG mainframe's infinite computing power is what drove the rune drives of Bastion and eventually unmade that distant set of moons. And still others say at the heart of the Zill Empire, an RPG mainframe hums and clicks, calculating some impossible outcome for the galaxy that cannot be fathomed by mortal minds. Either way, the mission awaits. The strange, carapace-like opening reveals itself in the warp shell. You enter. Hey, greetings, programs. It's old Hankrin Bernal, your old buddy here from Runehameria, the northern zone of that particular nation, coming at you on the RPG Mainframe Podcast. Welcome back. It is now episode 24. Whoa. Episode 24, that's crazy. Anyway, welcome everybody. We got a couple of items to get through today, and both of them are driven by y'all and y'all's interests. So first of all, we got a mailbag to look in real quick here. Got the hiccups or something. What's going on? We got a mailbag to look in right here. Mailbag day, mailbag day. Let's go see what's in the mail today. All right, I just wanted to address one mailbag today. Um, because it just jumped out from some of the others and it just seemed particularly interesting. And this question is about the difference in our narrative styles between written and spoken narrative practice. Now, nowhere more is this sort of odd difference felt than when you read the, uh, the read aloud box, right, in an adventure. So you're playing a published adventure, or even one that you've written yourself, and there's a little, you know, block of text that's in italic that says, you know, this chamber is 40 feet by 40 feet, with strange runes dripping with slimy slime from another time, right, right? So you have to read this little tidbit. And a lot of times, reading this little tidbit to your group 
feels sort of weird or a little bit forced, right? It, it, it feels a little dry. Um, sometimes you'll see some players disengage a little bit when you're reading pre-written text. And so at this moment, I feel uh, no more at any other moment is the difference between sort of spoken narrative style and written narrative style more apparent. Because I think that reading aloud is A, very difficult to do with sort of imaginative and emotive inflection. But B, the way that we write when we're narrating is vastly different than the way that we speak when we're narrating. And that difference creates some of that oddity in reading the, uh, the read aloud boxes in some adventures. So what is the difference? And like, can it be useful to us as dungeon masters, as game creators? And I think, oh, absolutely it can be useful to us. The difference is reading the room. The indifference, or I mean, the difference is the, the very back and forth which makes conversations so vastly different than reading. Now, we could get into the actual verbal differences, right? So when you're writing text, you're actually working on refined wording. That's really the only venue you have to improve your written text because you don't know the responses of the audience. You are a writer without an audience. You are writing to whomever may be listening. And in so doing, your best practice as a, as a written narrator is to just get your words as refined, as brief, and as potent as possible, right? To deliver an emotive message. Meanwhile, the spoken narrator gets to look into the faces of his audience. He is actually speaking to someone. So you're going to have a lot of verbal flotsam as a spoken narrator, right? And, and by that, what I mean is little tidbits of junk and throat clearing, as, uh, as Alex would call it, <laughs> Alex Alvarez. Throat clearing is saying words like um, just and sort of, and even in some cases, um. And these are little fillers that give you micro pauses that both let you refine what you're about to say and help you to read the crowd so that you can speak at a pace that is responsive to them and that fits their sort of attention as it rises and falls. You're not going to put this kind of flotsam and this kind of junk in your written narration. You don't write the word um very much <laughs> in your written narration unless it's dialogue because it's not refined wording. So when you're narrating your description for whatever it may be, it may be a battle maneuver, it may be a room description, it may be a critical hit, it may be a character or the way they look or the way a monster looks, when you're narrating it spoken, the, the best practices are all about reading the faces and responses of the people around you. And this means seeing when they're engaged and when they're not. The minute that they're not terribly engaged, wrap it up quickly and get the hell out of there. You're done. Conversely, when you see them tremendously engaged, intrigued or scared or excited or in character, then add some more flourish, get a little bit deeper into it. But if you sense that the patience level for your description is short, then you just need to cut and run. Whereas if you're reading something written, you're reading what's written no matter what happens. And, and this flexibility is the power of the spoken word. And I still believe that this is why a lot of times spoken stories are more exciting and can hit us in a more personal way because they play to us, to our interests, to our responses and our reactions. Whereas a written story is what it is. It's immutable. It's objective, right? And I think this is also why a lot of um, RPG readers 
don't necessarily translate over to being novel readers. And I can speak directly to this because I'm in both markets right now, right? I really want to be a novelist, but my audience and the people that I relate to the most, my peoples, my homies, my shield wall, they're all RPG people. So you can't just say, hey, RPG people, go read novels. Now, a lot of people who are into RPGs are into novels, but it does not translate one-to-one -one because the, the novel leaves no room for you. You're just reading a work that is complete. Whereas the RPG says, here's some tools, here's some tidbits. This is going to be shaped. You're going to play with it. You're going to adapt it. And this is the excitement of the hobby, right? The excitement of that hobby, of that verbal storytelling practice, does not translate one-to-one to the excitement of just being a novel reader. And therein lies this sort of interesting difference between oral narration and written narration. So the way that you get the most out of this difference as a dungeon master is to know when you're doing one and when you're doing the other. So if you're doing written narration, if you don't get to see your audience, let's say you're writing a published adventure or you're writing some stuff for a friend or writing something for something down the road, <laughs> then you just want to refine your wording, get it brief, get it potent, and make sure it's all correct and clean and you're good to go. But if you're preparing narration that you're going to speak, that you're actually going to interact with people while you narrate it, then I strongly recommend you do not write it out at all. All you do is you write out bullets. You let the moment determine how you're going to word it. And this is why I've been having fun practicing doing these improv RPG mainframe introductions. I don't write those down. I just hit the record button and I just try to go and try to go without any ums or big interruptions or kind of stumbles. And uh, it's a fun skill to practice. It's a little weird though because no one's sitting here with me when I do those. So I, I can't really read when people are excited or bored by what I'm saying because that's the very art of the verbal storyteller is seeing that and pivoting. So if you're working on spoken narration, think in vagaries and bullets. If you're working on written narration, get it as tight, as brief, and as potent as possible and know when one is going to be one and the other is going to be the other. So if you are going to be speaking a narration to your group and you write the whole thing down verbatim, you're going to wind up reading it. A lot of you have probably uh, experienced this thing where you get a DM or sometimes even a player with a backstory who's written like two pages of text and they insist on reading it to the group and it's nigh unbearable. <laughs> now that's not because their writing is bad. It's because reading pre-made writing to a group is kind of like saying, I don't care what your reactions are. I'm just going to hit you with this no matter what. And so it can be a bit of a snoozer, right? It's a bit of a TLDR type situation. And so avoid that situation by adapting as you use spoken narration and being incredibly brief when you're doing written. So I hope that helps answer some of the question that came into the mailbag. And I just wanted to speak to it because I think it's two modalities of narration that, uh, that rise and fall in our hobby quite a bit. And getting a clear delineation between the two, I think is going to make you better at both of them. So hey, that's just the one little mailbag that I wanted to speak unto today. So let's wrap up the old mailbag. It's filling up for next week and we'll uh, we'll return to it next week here on the mainframe. Mailbag day, mailbag day. Let's go see what in the mail do. Okay, today's primary topic is a bit more of a chin scratcher. I will scratch my cybernetic chin as I ponder this one. This is a doozy. And uh, I had to go back and basically do plenty of reading to get my head back in this space to give a meaningful sort of chunk of content here, something you could really chew on with your metal teeth, something you can gnash at with your metal claws. 
This is the Warp Shell Lore Dump. Do -do -do, do -do 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 -do. Warp Shell. A universe lying in ruin with one last hope. You! <laughs> of course, right? <laughs> okay, so we did a big lore dump on Alfheim, mainly focusing on some of the towns, right? And some of the, the deeper revelations about those towns. And so for Warp Shell, I want to go ahead and assume that all of you out there have read or skimmed the Warp Shell sections in the ICRPG core and the Warp Shell section in ICRPG Worlds. Now those sections delve into the great bulk of what I perceive to be the Warp Shell canon. I mean, especially in Worlds, there is a lot of detail in there about the potentialities and story stems of, you know, all the major parts and pieces of the Warp Shell universe. So for the sake of this talk, it's a little hard to reveal too much more to you, but what I did want to do is discuss some, some nuts and boltsy sort of how, how to use some of these lore components. And the components I wanted to focus on are Zivos, the Imperium, the Zil, and the Zurin. So in a lot of ways, Warp Shell is this kind of uncontainably gigantic setting, right? You, you have, whoa, what in blazes? I think there's a, there's a missile about to hit. Huh, no impact. So on the one hand with Warp Shell, you have all of these sort of backstory and the, um, you know, the story hooks and adventure hooks and, and all these little leads to go on, right? Like, you know, fishing trip and <laughs> the Tortons and one tough bastard and all this stuff, you know, the, uh, the, the devourer stuff. But on the other hand, there's sort of how to use the setting, which I think is more interesting. You know, this can seem like an infinite setting, right? Like you have the warp shell itself, which is able to move through time and space instantaneously without player action. So you have this huge amount of possibility and, you know, how you contain it becomes interesting, how you contain that infinitude. But what I want to talk about is how to use what's sitting there in the setting not only to contain the infinitude, but sort of where to take things and where to get more familiar ground. I think one thing that keeps people from playing science fiction campaigns is that you wind up in very unfamiliar ground. Things are weird. They're alien, right? They're, they're, they're not these classic tropes, you know, like elves and dwarves and English accents and, you know, gold pieces and all this stuff. And you don't get all this, like, built-in data. But I would argue that you can get a lot of that data it just takes a bit more parallelism, meaning taking things from science fiction and forming parallels to more familiar things in fantasy. And so let's start from the back end, the Zurin, right? So the Zurin in Warp Shell are basically sort of my answer to the Jawas. They're a more advanced version of the Jawas who are kind of hybridized with Yoda in many ways, right? So you have this sort of shamanic, you know, priest-like, wisdom-based uh, group of people. Now, it's not a race, it's a culture. The Zurin are a culture, and they're, they're a lot like Jedi in many ways. They're, they're peaceful, robe-wearing, elegant, magic-using healers. They want to heal the entire universe through peaceful means. So what I suggest is that not only do the Zurin have some cool adventure hooks, you know, they're like adventures circling around trees and temples and the like, 
right? You know, like you have this kind of ancient feel and that, that's all fine and dandy. But I think what's more interesting is to utilize the Zurin as your impeccable good guy. This is your priest or paladin. This is your druid who wants to defend nature. And here you get some of your sort of your tropes that you might be more used to, which is, you know, we have this one faction who refuses to pick up laser guns, you know, and even a, a sword, I think, would be a little bit vile to the Zurin. You know, they have wooden staves and so on and so forth. And so does this give you like everything you need to build a big campaign? No, but what it does is it gives you an out in a science fiction world to get back to a low-tech world. So anytime you want to get out of laser guns and warp drives and computers and all this kind of stuff, you use the Zurin as your hook. The Zurin have these worlds that are covered in trees. They have ancient temples. They have dungeons. They have mud creatures. They have, you know, druid-like standing stones and animated elementals and spells in the traditional sense. They have ancient books and you know, thatch huts and, and carts and horses and donkeys. All these things that are standard to a fantasy campaign are part and parcel when you look at the Zurin culture. And so what you do as a dungeon master is use this, just like Dagobah is used in Empire Strikes Back, right? You, you suddenly change the tone from all this sort of laser blasts and space battles all the way down to a hut with a bowl of soup. And you just bring it all the way down. And what this can give you is relief. Because sometimes the scale of a space opera can be overwhelming as a dungeon master. And just kind of like, yikes. So you can get all the cool variability of science fiction. Like having mecha characters and you know lizard characters and stuff like this. But you can put them in something extremely familiar. Like a temple that you're going to explore. Or a ruin where we need to recover an old book. But it's really fun when you put science fiction characters into a fantasy-like setting. It just adds up so great, and you can feel some more of the heightened power of things like laser blasters and energy shields and stuff like this, because they basically feel like magic. And you're going to get that fun effect, that Frank Frazetta effect, that sort of, um, you know, fighting men of Mars type effect, where you're blending science fiction and fantasy, and it, it has a really fun and potent storytelling freshness to it. And to get this, you're going to use the Zurin. Now, on the exact opposite end of the scale, you have the Zill in Warp Shell. Now, the Zill are not that mentioned as far as the detail of what it all means, but the Zill, to me, are this sort of shape-shifting, parasitic, super-expansive, imperialistic, manifest destiny alien race that no one can understand. They're made out of silicate composites that can reconfigure themselves into different shapes. They're somewhat metallic. They're somewhat chitinous. They have like weird little holes that gases come out of, which is their respiration. They don't eat food. You can't really see where their faces are. Like <laughs> these things are strange and their technology is no less strange. It's made out of the same stuff. So it blends with their bodies, kind of like the xenomorphs in the movies. And then their ships are also baffling and don't make sense. They sort of look like they're flying backwards or upside down. And the, the chambers are all biotechnological bio and confusing and how is this useful to you as a dungeon master? Well, on the one hand, you can invent anything for the Zill and it's going to fit. You can create any kind of tone to their race, be it from their planet all the way to their ships, to the individuals, and, and sort of make it what you want. Maybe they don't even speak. Maybe they speak in clicks. Maybe they can only speak to electronics. Maybe they're like 
the flight of the navigator where they can change form and become ships. Even the individuals can like become craft, like they transform, and this is interesting in a way. Now, one of the hooks that I ran with with the Zill is there's actually defectors who don't want the Zill to take over the universe. And they are sort of sent out on this mission to try to stop their own people. And this creates some, some intrigue. But most of all, what I wanted to provide the Dungeon Master with the Zill is this super high science fiction hook. These things can become and change into anything that you need for your game. Now, if you just need a big monster, you can make the Zill into that. If you need a parasitic, almost like gestating type creature, like a xenomorph, they could be that. If you want a, a really weird abandoned ship for sort of more normal characters to explore, nothing would be better than a Zill spaceship. If you want to invent new mechanics, like say you want to do like a magnetics battle where like there's these magnetic object or magnetic weapons that sort of disrupt technology or pull metal with an irresistible tug, then they add a strange element to a battle, you can have Ziltech doing that because the Ziltech is just so weird. It draws attention. It makes a great sort of zone or location in your battle that's sort of offbeat. And then you can use them as counterpoints. So if you're doing an Imperium-based uh, adventure, which is more like Firefly, you know, something a little more familiar, you know, big galactic empire versus pirates or rebels. But then the Imperium has been dabbling with the Zill, or maybe even has an agreement with them, or has this sort of tenuous alliance with the Zill that's going to backfire. And so what you do is you just continually use the Zill as this formless super evil. And their evil is one of their handy things, but their formlessness or changeability is their other handy thing. And so you can have entire worlds that have been encrusted with this sort of Zill weird technology. Or you could find a Zill world that's been destroyed, that's been defeated, maybe by the Imperium. Like they've blasted a hole through the core of this world and you get this leftover, which would almost be like crematoria from Pitch Black. Either way, the Zill give you this do-anything-you-need-to formless bad guy. And I think that's what's important to it. And it's a direct counterpoint to the Zurin. And using these two in concert can give you some more of this familiar ground that fantasy campaigns already have, right? Which is, there's always this evil race, like the Illithids. And then there's always the sort of good guy race, like the halflings. And in that collision or that conflict, many adventures can start appearing and creating themselves. And I would see the same potential for the Zurin and the Zill. Okay, so the next two things I wanted to talk about are the Imperium and Zevos. Now these are much more human factions, but are very different in the way that you want to use them. So let's kind of go back to where I started, which is Zevos. Okay, Zevos is the home of the warp shells. Now if you guys have read Worlds, you know that the warp shells have been created by this very questionable moral process where they torture these crustaceans, basically, by turning them into spaceships. And it's it's a terribly cruel process, and anyone of conscience would not let it continue, even though it means there will be no more warp shells, no, no more will ever be made. So that's one of the adventures in the book. But I think this is a bit of an extension of how you can use Zevos in an interesting way. Zevos is almost like Vulcans in a way, but the Vulcans are hiding a terrible secret. Zevos is this high ancient culture. They're the most ancient culture in the universe. And so they're extremely advanced, almost like the Watchers in Green Lantern, right? But they're so old and so advanced, their morality has become dubious, at least to younger civilizations. So maybe in the long term, their morality is going to be justified, but in the short term, it's unacceptable. And so you have this good faction 
a wise faction, an ancient sort of proven faction who's hiding these dark secrets, you know? And the dark secrets are yours to confabulate however you choose. There's so many options, you know? They're, they're taking slaves. They're doing genocide. They're, they're trading lives with, with deities. They are, you know, um, creating torturous work conditions to salvage or to harvest yog crystals to power their empire. They're, they're creating these warp shells via these torturous methods. Maybe they're making bioweapons out of zil slaves or captives. Maybe they're engaged in these sort of shadow wars by paying off mercs. And you can track the, the sort of the trail of currency to find that, oh my gosh, it's the Zavosians who are behind all this killing. And so there, you can see how there's a number of revelations that can be done here. And you're probably seeing through the thin veil, which is that Zevos and the Zavosians are kind of like elves in Alfheim, at least in my version of Alfheim, which is that the elves are high and mighty on the outside, but have these, all these dark secrets and insidious sides, and they're actually the main villain of the universe. But discovering that is what gives you your ideas for all your different adventure hooks. And that was the idea I was trying to bring across with Zevos, and especially with the sort of hollow planet. You know, their home planet is so old that it's completely hollow and has all these dungeons, and inside these dungeons are revelations about the dark deeds of Zevos. And the High Council won't answer to it, right? The High Council is sort of half liars, and half of them are honorable, and, and winning them over is a big part of the dynamic. You know, some of them are in the pockets of evil, and some of them are truly good, and they're being sort of thwarted by the evil sides of the Zavosians, and so on and so on and so forth. But this is what you do with the faction. Now, this gets double interesting when you get into my fourth piece, which is the Imperium. The Imperium is your galactic empire. These, this is your gigantic starships. These are your planet-destroying weapons, your super-advanced battle armor that's almost implacable by you know, lower-level forces like rebels or thieves. They have like gold trim on their stuff. They have, you know, space folding technology like in Dune, like the Emperor in Dune has, right? They have incredible, they can like move planets with like giant rockets. They can, they can spawn stars. You know, the, these guys are epic. They have like an entire slave race of like replicant type humanoids that they've created that they engineer on a planet, almost like the clones from Star Wars, right? They have this entire race that they've created. Like, this is big time stuff. Far bigger than any other faction that could be imagined in Warp Shell is the Imperium. Now, the Imperium is a lot like, you know, some of the factions in 40K. It is just absolute domination. It's this, this massive military machine that simply dominates everything it touches, and it's all subsumed by the will of the Emperor. Now that is clearly bad for the universe. This is just pure tyranny. And as a dungeon master, you're going to demonstrate that tyranny in a few specific cases. You know, you're going to need to show some of those slave planets, and you're going to need to show some of the dark side of the Imperium, right? But what gets interesting is that Zevos is in direct opposition, uh, op <laughs> direct opposition to the Imperium. Like Zevos is sworn to destroy and dethrone the Emperor. But Zevos is hardly the good guys. You know, the Tortons are more like the absolute good guys, or the Zurin. And they're not remotely powerful enough, either of those civilizations, to really go up against the Imperium. And frankly, I don't even think Zevos is really powerful enough. But Zevos has this trans-time, trans-space technology that could maybe find a way to undermine the Imperium. Either way, the interesting 
aspects that you can delve as a dungeon master start to feel a lot like Dune, in that Dune has these different houses that are vying that have mixed morality. There isn't really that clear of a good guy, bad guy. Clearly, the Imperium is terrible, but in an empire that big, there have to be some good people, right? And clearly, Zevos is set against the Imperium, and so should be the ally of the good guys. But Zevos has its own super dark secrets that would make it an enemy. And this, I think, is where you can find a lot of your stories appearing in Warp Shell. And then for my final piece of Warp Shell sort of lore dump, what I want to talk about is a little mention in the World's Book that's very short, but I think is very, very important, which is about making your story big and your fights small. And what this means is that, yeah, we just talked about these transgalactic stories, right? Especially if you bring into the Devourer, you know, which is this creature that's bigger than a solar system that's slowly eating the galaxy and stuff. You bring that in and things get a little crazy, <laughs> right? So your stories are big. They span planets. They span, span galaxies. They even span centuries. But to run these games, you need to find a way to then bring that down to an extremely small encounter. You know, all this stuff is at stake, but really it comes down to this little commando force, which is on this planet and needs to destroy this transponder. If that happens, then the transmissions aren't going to reach the Imperium. They'll never arrive at the planet, and that planet won't be destroyed, and they'll go on to research the technology that someday undoes the Devourer, right? And there's a lot of really large machines in my neighborhood today. Okay, so thinking big for your story and thinking very, very small for your fights and for your encounters, your battles, and your actual gameplay. And, uh, you know, I, I know that I'm quoting Star Wars a lot here, but Star Wars does a great job at this, which is like there are these massive stories that boil down to the heroic actions of just a few people. And they're, they're critical. You know, they, they fight these critical juncture battles, which are the turning points of the galactic political situation. And by doing that, A, you keep your Dungeon Master sanity on the up and up because you will go crazy trying to run like capital ship battles every week and stuff like that. <laughs> You'll go nuts. But B, you also give players something very concrete to leverage their character builds against. Right? It's hard for me to build a, a Jedi character and then feel really, you know, fully realized when all I'm doing is like manning a turret. Right? Or, or flying a capital ship or ordering a crew around. You really need that, that ground level engagement in the clutch battles that are going to sway these galactic events. And that's where you're going to find the magic of a science fiction campaign. Now, I generally invented Warp Shell as a sort of a playground-y type setting. So I think the challenge that you guys are going to face if you're getting into Warp Shell is to create a little bit more linear feel to a campaign because the way it's written is so sort of, uh, you know, sandboxy or sort of wild-minded. And if, if I were you and you're facing that challenge... I think the way to do it is to get it as fantasy-like as possible. That means finding parallels to tropes that you know, bringing the focus down to a human level, you know, bringing in familiar things like magic or, or, or you know, an old books or relics or a great monster, or keeping the entire thing on a single planet or even a single continent. That's okay. You don't have to span the galaxy just because it's galaxy-spanning. So you could have, you know, a... a a dragon-like 
campaign. You know, often in a fantasy campaign, you're working your way up to fighting a dragon, right? This is all happening not only just on a continent, but a even smaller area than a continent, where you're traveling to different towers, you're meeting different people, you're, you're, you're doing all this stuff that's going to culminate in a single monster. All these things can be happening in science fiction. A, a great example of this would be like the movie Oblivion, right? Or even the movie Reign of Fire. You know, there's some technology in those stories. But the focus is so small, it makes a great campaign. You know, it kind of starts in this area, expands a little bit, you meet some new characters, you see the wider story. And that wider story can expand across the galaxies into other solar systems, but your players themselves don't go into other solar systems. They stay in this very focused area because there's this, you know, there's this Zill sorcerer, mastermind type character who has built this dimension engine. And this thing is on a specific planet, on a specific continent, and you need to find and confront this specific boss monster to end the campaign. You don't ever get in a spaceship. You don't ever fly around a moon or do maneuvers or do capital ship battles or any of this stuff. It's all super focused. And I think this is a way to get science fiction to be much more digestible for those of you who are more familiar with fantasy. So I hope that's like a helpful viewpoint on how to get more out of science fiction. The real fun of science fiction to me is not planet hopping. It is characters. It's individual people that are mecha, that have blasters, that can create strange machines, that have weird stories from other worlds, that are aliens, and, and that have symbiotes and uh, you know psychic powers and all this stuff. This to me is the fun. Not that we get to jump in ships and warp to planet to planet to planet to planet. That's cool too, but that, uh, honestly it can drive you a little crazy as a DM. And so this is just a suggestion of how to you know create manageability in your science fiction campaign. Because I do, I would love to see Warp Shell, you know, like be alive and be out there and be played. Um, and uh, Last Flight of the Red Sword, I think is a great example of this mindset, is you have the entire universe to screw around with, but really it's just aboard one ship. That's your night of gameplay. And that level of focus is what gives you this kind of, you know, foot by foot sort of battle that's very digestible. You know, a matter, imagine an entire universe and it's hinging on a football game, <laughs> right? So that's the, the difference in scale that we're talking about here is like the events of a universe hinge upon the events of a very small encounter. So I'm just beating a dead horse now, but I think it's just you guys see where I'm taking this whole discussion. And this is really all I wanted to talk about. I think that uh, Warp Shell really speaks for itself in the books. And so, you know, I don't need to get into, you know, the emissary and get into the Tortons and all this stuff. I do think that the Tortons are one of the most ripe races uh, as far as like maybe an expansion pack could happen. Um, you know, there could be just a Torton campaign and I think that would be, you know, strangely popular. There's just something really lovable and fun about them, um, but also a little bit serious. And I think it's very conducive to a really cool campaign. So uh, maybe that's a, a project for me to scribble on a little bit and put my brain into. But otherwise, I think Warp Shell is very well realized in the books and ready for you to dive in. If you guys are experimenting with a Warp Shell campaign and have more questions, please don't hesitate to email me directly, hankerin.burnale at gmail.com or hit me on Facebook or right here on Patreone de Rumhammer. And whatever it takes, just let me help if I can with your campaigns and adventures because I'm always interested. It is the greatest hobby in the world after all. You guys, thanks for tuning in. I hope this was a helpful illumination of some of the aspects of Warp Shell that can be used to create what would be called fronts in Dungeon World and how they can make awesomeness at your tabletop. Thanks for tuning in and all new patrons. Hey, welcome to the crazy bin. 
Good to have everybody. And um, this is the RPG Mainframe, guys. I'll talk to you next week and see you on that old internet. Cheat.